Welcome to A Reason for Hope, your question connection with the entire Word of God. We'd love for you to join the conversation. Simply follow us on our Facebook page at Calvary Christian Fellowship. If you have a question, please text or email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. And now, here are your hosts, Pastor Sean and Pastor Peter. Well, very good afternoon. Welcome to this edition of A Reason for Hope. Sean Richards hosting today and joined by Peter Martin to answer your Bible questions for the next hour. It will be airing, of course, on our radio affiliates on Good Friday. So if you have any uh, questions regarding the holiday of which we are remembering, the historical crucifixion of our Lord, or his resurrection, noting that is the weekend leading up to it. It's not his death, but his resurrection that makes it matter. We'll be happy to take your questions or any sincere question about the Bible. You can email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can get the proper spelling of that as well as to join us in our chat box at our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. Our social media platforms on Facebook is Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, and our YouTube page is a reason for hope. However, if we aren't streaming there, note that if we have been removed and it's not a technical difficulty on our part, our website will still be available. We encourage you to meet us regularly there at calvarychristianfellowship.com. The C-A-L-V-A-R-Y spelling. We'll be happy to join you, host you, and accommodate you with any Bible questions that you have. Note as well, if we don't get to your question before the broadcast time runs out, uh, feel free to email us as well. It will keep it nice and organized for us, accessible, and able to be properly represented. Just make sure that the question is sincere, a question, and about the Bible. That's all that we ask. Before we get into it and make the most of the time that we have, want to start us off in a word of prayer? Yeah. Father, we thank you and we praise you so much for what you're doing in our lives, how you love us, how you care for us, how you've forgiven us by the blood of your Son. We do pray that right now we'd be able to focus in on your word and your truth. Allow me and Sean to be able to deliver that in a way that people can understand and that would benefit them in their relationship with you. In your name, amen. That is true. Now, uh, as your questions are going to be coming in, we want to start, of course, clarifying certain things you're bound to hear about the Easter holiday that we want to make sure you hear the other side of and note, examine both positions. Uh, The popularization that Easter was originally a pagan holiday is verifiably false and comes from sources that aren't actually pagan, but rather the assumptions and assertions that were made by people who claimed they were pagan, not the pagans themselves. Anyone can say that something was something, but if the people who are supposedly the topic of the accusation never said that, we have a problem. The reason why Easter is so often associated with paganism is because one of the months that was named after the goddess, and supposedly, of course, we can't verify this either, but one of the supposed goddesses is around that time, the Germanic, excuse me, pronunciation, Oster. Now, generally, because the Easter holiday either uh, comes in the Roman calendar between uh, late March and mid-April, it's based on the lunar calendar, not the solar. So we need to first keep that in mind. But the reason why it was most commonly associated with this title is because not the origin of the holiday, but the language at which we're speaking about it. Before that, it was referred to as Pasher, which is a shorthand for Passover, the time at which Jesus was remembering with his disciples the Exodus and pronouncing its 
fulfillment in what he would ultimately be doing, which we can talk about more in a moment. But noting that point as well, uh, the elements of Easter eggs and painting those things, oh, that's pagan. No, actually, it was the food that was available most frequently, at least the one that was easiest to preserve through the traditional, not the biblical, but the traditional observation of Lent. They would mark these eggs out as with red dye in order to note these are what we are saving for Easter because it was the form of protein that kept apart from butchering meat without refrigerators and salt. But noting that point as well, when they would peel away the red and reveal it to be white, it's not hard to see the significance. This was a tradition that was formed. Note, it's not a biblical practice, but it was one in medieval Europe that gained some traction after a while. They would paint the eggs to mark them for the Easter feast. They would be fasting during Lent, the time at which they'd be setting aside milk and protein for a set time period. Nowadays, it's just any form of delicacy that they choose, which once again is not biblical, but it is a nice thing to do if you want. The point being made, though, is this. When they would indulge in these eggs, it was, of course, marked by. They didn't have calendars or Google Maps to determine when Easter was. It was determined by not only the Jewish customs that would determine it by the full moon, but also the arrival of spring, which was usually accommodated by the most active of forest and woodland creatures in Europe, the hares and rabbits. Now, note there is a difference, but let's make that point. They say, oh, well, the rabbit, that's a fertility uh, icon. Well, where are you getting that information? Well, rabbits, they're fertile. Where are you getting that from? Not the assumption that because rabbits make a lot of babies, <laughs> that suddenly means that hares are a pagan symbol, because hares, by the way, are not as fertile and virile as rabbits. They are a different type of woodland creature. Still a first-level consumer, but can't be perfect in every regard. When we're talking about this, though, we need to also cross-reference some of the other things because what we can't verify and what we can are both equally important. What we can't verify is the identity or significance of this pagan goddess, Easter, or the worship that surrounded her in regards to all of these various elements. You can quote Alexander Hislop all you like. He was making these things up out of his hat. But we could also take a step back and go, well, what about the other Christians that claimed that these things were pagan? Well, good for them. If they got something wrong, then they got something wrong. If they got something right, then they can verify it with the pagan sources themselves. I have looked in, in excruciating detail to, I guess, use the pun for today's uh, holiday. Uh, regarding Celtic, Norse, and German folklore and mythology, and we don't have any mention of this Oster or Easter. We do, however, do uh, have a Germanic understanding of months, but when we add up the details and the accusations that are made by the, quote, anti-holiday crowd, we can take a step back and just say we need to calm down about this a little bit. When it comes to the reason why we're painting eggs or we're giving baskets or people are dressing up as rabbits and traumatizing children, not speaking from experience, it's all secondary information. It's traditions that have various origins. And even if we were to assume that all of this is pagan, which it's not, even if we were to assume that this is all found in pagan sources, which by the way, it's not, what matters is what we're doing, why we're remembering this day in history, which, Peter, I'll hand it off to you. Why is it that, uh, I guess to ironically quote the thing Jewish women would say to each other on this night as well, why is this night different from any other night? Yeah, no, 
Very cool. And this is one of the holidays that I struggle the most with, with these, these Christians that come against it and say it's pagan. With Christmas, I'm like, okay, we don't really know when Jesus was born. It, it is There's a reason why they thought it was at Christmas time, but uh, I mean, December 25th, but it's not biblical. Like, I get that. Easter is one of those things where it's like it correlates with Passover. It is <laughs> This is the time that it was supposed to happen. We are genuinely celebrating the death of Jesus at the time that we best could reckon it, because again, the Jews at the time of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection were using a, a lunar calendar, right? So it makes sense for us to continually use that lunar calendar to map out when we're going to commemorate this time. But as you said, as Christians, what we're celebrating is we're celebrating the fact that Jesus died for our sins, that there was a purpose and a reason for the fact that he was crucified. It wasn't just some unfortunate circumstance. It wasn't just that, you know, Jesus was a freedom fighter, and he got caught up in a crossfire between the Jews and the, the people that were following Jesus. No, no, no. Jesus died for our sins. There was a very specific and intentional purpose behind it, that we as human beings have fallen short of the glory of God. We have sinned. We have failed his perfect commandments. And since God is perfect, only perfect people can make it into his kingdom. So God made a way for us to have a relationship with him, and that was through sending his son who lived a perfect life, the life that we should have lived, and he laid it down on a cross, and he died for us, that he may be raised again to prove to us that not only did his sacrifice, uh, was his sacrifice counted by God and accepted by God, but also that now he has the power over death and Hades, as Jesus himself put it. He has power over death and Hades so that all who believe in him will have eternal life. So very, very precious and very, very beautiful. And if ever there was a reason to celebrate... <laughs> I think this is a reason to celebrate. And we as Christians, I think, should take the opportunity allotted to us to be able to focus in on this amazing miracle of God to remember it. Because here's the deal. You know, we all like to say that, yeah, I just, you know, every day is Easter for me. Every day I, I think about God's resurrection. Hey, if that's legitimate for you, good on you. But the vast majority of us that say that, it's just not true. Life just happens. We get caught up in various things that are happening surrounding us. We get caught up with work, with kids, with family, and we forget. We forget these simple things, and it's good to have a time on our calendar to just sit and reflect on such a beautiful and wonderful truth because, again, we can forget it. So it's good for us, and it's good for outreach as well. There are so many people in our culture that will go to church, even if they don't believe in God at all, and they will go to church on Easter. And it brings up the topic of Jesus. It brings up the topic of Christianity. So, yeah, that means that we have to endure a lot of terribly written time articles about the, the real Jesus and all that stuff. But it also means that people are thinking about it. People are talking about it. There is no better time for evangelism, for reaching out to people uh, about the truth of Jesus Christ. So I think it's an awesome thing. I think it's a beautiful thing. If you don't and you're just like, you know what, I don't want to do it, fine, don't do it. But as Romans would put it, don't judge your brother who's going to observe it to the Lord, right? So I'm not going to judge you for not observing it unto the Lord, and you don't judge me or anyone else who does observe it unto the Lord. Because note the common factor, unto the Lord. He's the focus of the day, whether it's as any other day or as one day above another. The key detail is we're focusing on the resurrection. And that, of course, is a central issue. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul said, If Christ is not raised, you're still in your sins, and of all men most to be pitied. Our faith is meaningless. So when it comes to the resurrection, and this is to equip those listening, perhaps Christian or otherwise, when it 
it comes to the historicity of this, obviously you look at the Time articles, they'll say, oh yeah, Jesus definitely existed. Mm -hmm. he, uh, he was a magician, he was a soothsayer, he was regarded as a revolutionary, according to some interesting individuals. Others regarded as a religious figure or teacher. Uh, his disciples, uh, even to their credit, some atheist and Jewish non-Christian uh, scholars will acknowledge and note that they perceived him to have been risen from the dead because they have to explain the data. But what is the data that we have in our favor when it comes to the resurrection? Why do you and I believe, and you can mention some details, I'll mention some as well, mm -hmm. what are the historical evidences, if that's a word, <laughs> to the resurrection of Jesus as we're remembering uh, why he had to rise from the dead in the first place? Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is so cool because we as Christians, when it comes to hope of everlasting life, hope of eternal life, hope of a heaven, we have literally the only religion where our founder says, I've been there and I proved it because I died and I'm risen. And it's a historical fact, meaning it's something that happened in history. And by the way, uh, I encourage you guys to look up C.S. Lewis's Addison Road conversion. Uh, when he was talking with J.R.R. Tolkien and a mutual friend, the thing that, fr that confounded him about Jesus is that Jesus was a historical figure. He was not someone he can just cast off as just like a mythological figure because Lewis loved mythology. And, you know, he loved reading about Boar and Odin and all these other people. But, you know, he was just like, I, I just, you know, Christianity is just another myth uh, among many. But Tolkien challenged him. He says, no, Jesus is different because Jesus is either historically true or he's not. So as Christians, we need to be careful about that. We can't just be like, well, you know, Christianity is true for me, you know, and I just believe it. No, no, no. Jesus is a historical figure. You don't have the right to say he's true for you. That's like me saying, well, George Washington is true for me, you know, but I can't really put that trip on you. George Washington existed. Whether you accept it or not, it doesn't change the historicity of those events. And same with Jesus. Jesus was a historical figure. We don't get to pick and choose what he said and what he didn't say. And we don't get to transform what his message was and what he did. It happened at a moment in history, and therefore we have to be faithful to what those accounts tell us. So when it comes to Jesus, like, why do we believe that he did uh, die? Now, because in order to raise from the dead, you have to die first. So... Um, this is something that even people who are atheists like Gerd Ludemann has said it's one of the most fundamental facts of history that we know that Jesus died under Pontius Pilate. Well, why do we know that? Well, as Sean said, not only do we have the accounts of the Bible, which are important, by the way. Some uh, atheistic scholars say, well, the Bible doesn't really matter because it's written by biased sources. Every single piece of history that we have is written by a biased source. <laughs> Every single piece of history that we have. How dare you believe what you write? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And beyond that, they say, well, there's miracles in the Bible. How can we believe it? Every historian that we have records miracles. If it was in that time and period, right? Plenty of the younger, I mean, plenty of the elder. Uh, uh, Plutarch, Plutarch uh, starts Suetonius. with his life of Alexander. We can talk about the issues regarding the theogony. We can talk about Homer and the Iliad and that insight into Greek culture that is completely allowed. Uh, did you mention Herodotus? We can talk about those uh, uh, acknowledgments of the Oracle of Delphi's predictions. That's right. We they can go, all yeah. acknowledge miracles. All of them acknowledge yeah, miracles. Zoroaster, you name it. Yeah. That's right. So if we're going to throw out the accounts of the Bible because they include miracles well then you got to throw out all those guys too right anything over a thousand years that's right exactly so it's just ridiculous it's just applying one standard to the bible and a different standard to everything else that we take for granted yeah just just be consistent okay you disregard the miracles 
just like we would in false religions that would make these assertions, Greek and uh, Persian paganism. But we take the data That's right. at face value. We acknowledge real people, real places, real things that we can verify. What can we verify about Jesus of Nazareth? Right. And uh, does it uh, sufficiently conclude what we believe? Right. So when we're looking at the bi- biblical accounts, the important thing to understand is that these are multiple witnesses. And we know and verified, and I don't have time to get into this right now, but you can either ask questions about it or you could watch videos on, uh, you know, William Lane Craig does a really good job of explaining this, Gary Habermas, uh, N.T. Wright, they do a very good job of explaining this. But essentially what we have is multiple witnesses throughout the Bible that we know for a fact lived during the first century. These are contemporaneous accounts. These are not people that are writing this way after the fact. Why does that matter? Because when you're writing things way after the fact, it's much easier to change details without being called out on it. When you are writing things during the time where Jesus's mother was still alive, I think she might have something to say to you (laughs) if you kind of fudge the numbers a little bit. And Paul, by the way, in 1 Corinthians 15, when he talks about his conversion and he talks about the resurrection, he says there are 500 brothers that saw him risen, many of which are still alive. And atheist scholars would acknowledge that report as within months of the original event. That's as early as anything in written history would get. That's right. Noting the point as well, you'd say, well, why wouldn't they? want to start their own religious movement and all the prestige, honor, and power that comes with it, uh, like the disciples. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They, they got that, didn't yeah. they? Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, so every single, the, yeah. <laughs> every single disciple lived a pretty horrendous life after Jesus rose from the dead, some of which were, to be fair, were already kind of impoverished and they were more blue-collar guys, but there were several disciples that were wealthy, prior to the resurrection of Jesus. Matthew um, tax collector, James Boanerges, and others. Yeah. That's right. Or and John especially, Boanerges. yeah, and uh, Paul as well. Yeah. Saul very wealthy, very, very put together. They got rid of all of it. Why? Because when you're starting an antagonistic religion against the people that just killed the guy <laughs> that began the religion in the city where they killed him, right? All the contemporaneous accounts, not just the Bible, because we do have other accounts from different historians, all of them point to the fact that the disciples taught in Jerusalem, right? This is where Christianity began. We know that definitively. If you start teaching in the city where the founder of your religion was killed, you're probably not going to get the best of treatment. And that's why persecution in the church started Almost on day one, right? It was very quickly that persecution of the church began to occur. That's why we have Stephen executed in such an early fashion. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, who wasn't the Apostle Paul at that time, very quickly persecuting the Christians. All of them had pretty tragic lives. None of them were wealthy. None of them were popular. All of them were killed in horrible, horrible ways. Peter was crucified. James, the brother of Jesus, was stoned to death underneath the temple after being thrown off of the temple and put um, <laughs> out of his misery with a club to his head exactly paul was uh, had his head cut off john the apostle was boiled alive in oil he somehow lived through that <laughs> and they uh, sentenced him to a prison island all of these guys lived really tragic lives and died in very tragic ways. This is what Paul means when he says, if there is no resurrection, we of all men are to be most pitied. That is a pretty incredible statement where if I could look at different types of people who started world religions, like let's say Muhammad or Joseph Smith, if what they said wasn't true, 
they still have some stuff to fall back on, right? Which obviously the stuff wasn't true, but they got a lot of money from it. They got a lot of followers from it and they were able to get a lot of success from what they were doing. The apostles can't make that claim. And they never tried to, by the way, because again, if they were trying to actually just make a lot of money and stuff, they definitely wouldn't have started it in Jerusalem. They would have gone anywhere else. They would have gone to far corners of the earth to start this religion in order to avoid the act of persecution that they endured. So we have literally the blood of the saints confirming the testimony that they gave us. But there are are many other reasons that we believe in the historicity of the resurrection. What are the other ones that we got, Sean? Well, in order to verify anything historically, the word histor means eyewitness. You need people who are there and you need reason to trust them. As far as Jesus's death, we have Roman, we have Greek, we have pagan, we have Christian, Jewish. we have yeah, antagonistic Jewish, and mm-hmm. of course, Jewish themselves, the writings of the eyewitnesses. <laughs> but noting the point, Every single venture and every single vantage point that could have viewed Jesus' death, it is verified beyond a reasonable doubt, with the exception of the Talmud, to be crucifixion. The Talmud mentions him being hung, which is technically true. But note the point. If we can verify someone's death by multiple accounts, at least two, that's what's called the standard of multiple attestation, the strictest historical criticism you can get. You've got two separate people saying the same basic thing. We could know at a base level this is as true and as certain as history can be. Then we go to, okay, if he died, that means he was born. And if he was born and died, what happened afterwards? Well, obviously the explanation, the disciples just made up a story. Their lives don't reflect that. Well, what about what they said? What about what they saw? What's their history? Well, according to, and some of you are already ahead of me on the comments there, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, as we said, verses 3 through 7, documents what Paul himself first was given. This is dated again to within months of the claimed, uh, the now alleged. This, this is very important because it puts to death the mythology right. theory, right? So the mythology theory is that, well, Jesus was kind of like a normal guy, but then over the years he developed into this kind of mythological figure. Uh, the problem with that is that in order for the mystical or the mythological theory to be correct, the early stuff has to contradict the later stuff. And we have no earlier sources than this, which acknowledge three key details, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Now, this is where we get into histor. He was seen, remember, history, histor, eyewitness, by Cephas, then by the twelve, then by over 500 brethren at one time. And in Paul's recollection of this ancient hymn, he makes the point that some of which are still alive to this day. At the writing of 1 Corinthians, he says you can ask them. They're Mm -hmm. still alive, most of them at least. Then he was seen by uh, James, then by all of the apostles. Now, James is very important. Yeah. (laughs) Why is that? So so James was the brother of Jesus. So uh, I can't remember who said it, but he's like, what would it take for you to believe that your brother, it was a Gary Habermas. What would it take for you to believe that your brother was the divine son of God who died for your sins and rose again? A death and (laughs) resurrection would be a start. Yeah, it would be a start. And we know from the accounts in the the Gospels, and by the way, even historians who are antagonistic to the resurrection story will admit that it is certain that Jesus' brothers were antagonistic towards him. Why? Because of the principle of embarrassment. You don't actively insult the founders of your faith. And when you read about the brothers of Jesus in the Gospels, which, by the way, we don't see their redemption in the Gospels. They come across 
real bad, especially in the Gospel of John. They come across really, really bad because they were. And they would be the first to tell us that, yep, we were really bad at that point because they didn't believe. They did not believe what Jesus was saying. They, uh, James encountered Jesus, and it converted him. It immediately converted him, and we see him as an early church leader within Jerusalem. Very, very important to understand. So his brother was convinced that his brother was the divine Son of God who rose again, even though he was antagonistic towards that truth for the entirety of Jesus' life. So that's very important because we have a hostile witness, not just people who wanted to see Jesus risen, but people who didn't. And James is important, but there's an even more important witness mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15, isn't there? And I, being one born out of due time, which was the Apostle Paul speaking from his firsthand experience on the road to Damascus. Now, what makes him important is not only does he fit the criteria of embarrassment, but also multiple attestation without a need for a single gospel account to verify the resurrection on two of the strictest historical criticisms. Now, the reason why Saul of Tarsus is so important, later renamed himself as Paul, is because he was not only, not as, but more antagonistic (laughs) than Jesus' biological half-brothers. But what's even more significant was in the process of seeking out to imprison, torture, and kill Christians with already having a few notches in his belt in that department. Mm. He had an immediate 180, not a 360, because that just means you're still going the same direction, (laughs) a reversal of his position where he spent, according to Galatians chapters 1 through 2, three years alone in Arabia. Mm. And then after that, almost obsessively, the historical critics are looking at this account, to Jerusalem to seek out Peter, Uh, James and a few of the other apostles who weren't named. Mm. But he goes to the eyewitnesses to verify his story, and I quote, to see if I had run in vain. Mm. Paul's not the kind of guy who said, I had this hallucination in the desert, and now I'm going to go and uh, smoke the ganja for Jesus. You know, I'm just, uh, I just went insane. No, he rationally studies. He thinks this out. He travels way out of his way to the original place where these things took place, to the original people who claimed to have seen it like he saw and Mm -hmm. said, are the things that I'm coming to conclusions about with Jesus lining up with what you saw firsthand? And by the way, you know, many people have talked about the Apostle Paul because even, again, antagonistic people towards the Gospels, when you read the writings of Paul, they don't read like the writings of a madman and they don't read like the writings of a buffoon. Paul was a very, very intelligent person person and even people who hate the bible have to admit it the rigor the philosophical rigor of his prose within his various letters is incredible right now i've read a lot of religious writings i've read i've read the bible but i've also read things like from joseph smith i've read the quran it is very clear when you're reading the rantings of a lunatic right and when you read the quran i i encourage anyone who if you've not read the quran before just try it And tell me if you think that the person who wrote that was in a sound mind and was a large intellect, and the answer is just just absolutely not. Well, how can you say that? He says at least 40 times in the book that he's not crazy. If you have to tell someone (laughs) over and over and over and over again, you're not crazy. And command them to recite (laughs) that you're not crazy. 
you're definitely not crazy. No, absolutely not. But notice the trend that we're building up here. This is all historical data. We're not quoting the Bible to prove the Bible. We're using the Bible as a collection of data in order to examine what we can know about history. And if it mentions people, places, and things that we can verify, then we have to come to conclusions about that. If you run into some, you know, hack Reddit user just says, Jesus never existed, and here's my theory, and so forth, good for them. But if we're talking to people who actually take the data seriously. They would quote more Bible verses than we would mm. in arguing this issue. Yeah. The problem is not the information, it's the conclusions. And we're getting questions here that uh, we'll address here in a moment, but just kind of building on this point before we get into some of the specifics, we celebrate Good Friday because of a historical reality and the significance behind it as explained by the guy who died himself. But we also celebrate Easter Sunday because why? As historically certain as Jesus' death is, we have every reason and more to believe what the accounts report regarding what happened that morning. And it was what? That the man who said, I'm going to physically die and on the third day rise again, did it. And for this reason. What reason? Well, I'd encourage you, read it. We got four different accounts explaining that very thing. Absolutely. So uh, I think we got a, a good question here. Um, Regarding what we've been talking about. Regarding the resurrection or regarding the validity of the Bible? Uh, the resurrection. So this he is He wants from, to know, this is from Craig, who wants to know those who physically die before the rapture mm -hmm. and, of course, after the uh, resurrection of Jesus, what kind of physical bodies do they have in heaven? Uh, this is noting the point to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. But the same passage we've been quoting, 1 Corinthians 15, says that those who are caught up to be together with those who are with the Lord in the clouds will be given a glorified body. And mm -hmm. people say, oh, so at the rapture, that's like the glorification of all those who are with Jesus and who are without. There's two theories. I'll give the brief one, and then you can give the uh, more... Uh, smart one. Uh, I'll just the, read the passage. Yeah, the, the brief one is this perception of time, that those who are raptured are seeing Jesus for the first time in the same way that those who have physically died beforehand are as well, that we're leaving this space-time continuum we call the universe into the presence of Jesus so that it would all be an indistinguishable moment for all of us, that your loved ones aren't uh, waiting, you know, 2,000 plus years for you to come and join them, that we're all, in a sense, all seeing Jesus at the same time. We're entering into a new plane, if you will. Uh, that's, of course, a theory not necessarily unbiblical, but not based on much either. What does the text actually say? Uh, yeah, so this is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and the entire chapter of 1 Corinthians 15 is all about the resurrection. Yeah. It's, a, it's a very big chapter, by the way. It starts with what <laughs> Jesus did, it continues with what that means for us, and it concludes with, now prophetically, how do we benefit from exactly. this? Exactly. So this is verse 50, so Paul has just gotten done talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the resurrection bodies that we will achieve, and he is answering this very important question that you have asked of, when do we get these bodies? How does that work? Uh, verse 50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. I mean, uh, inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So... So when this corruptible is put on incorruption and this mortal is put on immortality, then we shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. 
O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? Now, what Paul is saying is he's saying that there is going to be an, an event, a moment in which we will all be changed. We're all going to be transformed. We're all going to be given these new bodies. Now, he is saying that the people who are already dead, that is the moment where they will be raised. Uh, I saw another person in the comments make the observation, this is true, that if you were to die today, if the Lord tarries, what would happen is you would go into an interim period where you're in heavenly glory, but you do not have the resurrected body yet. So that, right. that working assumption is based on Scripture. If you are physically dead, you're not in a soul sleep state. Mm-hmm. You're with the Lord. And that's, by the way, also written to the Corinthians and Second Corinthians. That's right. Second Corinthians chapter 5, if you want to read through that section to get that uh, piece of data. But this, that would be an unnatural state. God wanted us to be embodied souls, right? He wanted us to have bodies, and therefore to be in a disembodied state is kind of unnatural to what God intended. But God allows for that kind of, quote-unquote, unnatural state to exist for a time in preparation for the great resurrection, which will happen when he comes back, right? When the world is renewed, then the sons of God will be—I'm uh, sorry, when the sons of God are revealed, then the world will be renewed. So the resurrection will happen. Romans chapter 8. Exactly, exactly. So if you want to read through that, read through Romans 8, and Paul talks about that as well. Now, there are different theories about what this is talking about. So in, in verse 51, where he talks about not everyone sleeping, that's clearly a reference to the rapture. But is he saying that the resurrection happens when we're caught up? Is that what he's saying? Or is he saying that we're going to be caught up and then we're going to be in our resurrected bodies? And that's kind of the idea there, right? Uh, We don't really, uh, we have our theory and there's a reason why we believe it. So what we believe is that we will be caught up and then when Jesus returns, we will be raised. We will receive our resurrected bodies with the rest of the dead that uh, died in Christ first. Why? Because that's what 1 Thessalonians 4 uh, says, right? So it says that we will be caught up, but we will not precede the dead, right? So that means that the people who have already died will be raised before us, but we will then be raised with them. So there's going to be like a preceding of the resurrection, if you want to call it that. Uh, The people who uh, would read this as saying like, well, no, 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 this, this is the rapture. So you are being raised at the time that this trumpet is sounding, and that's what's being referenced there. The people who would say that have to believe in what we would call post-tribulation rapture. So what they believe is that after the, the tribulation is over and Jesus returns, that's the rapture. We are raised, we are transformed in that moment, and the dead are raised at the same time. So that's the way that they believe. Me and Sean are obviously pre-tribulation rapture individuals, so if you want to know our reasoning for that, we could get into it. But otherwise, I hope that helps answer your question. So we would distinguish between the rapture and the resurrection. So, and then noting that point as well, 1 Corinthians 15 is just emphasizing we benefit from the bodily resurrection upon death. Right. And noting if right. that's without physical death or the rapture, it's the same result. You're with the Lord, and with the Lord means to be with the Lord. If that entails a resurrection body immediately, or if it will all be culminated at Revelation chapter 20 when we return with him, and that there's this interim body that we have, or disembodied, that's iffy because there's biblical evidence against being disembodied spirits but the point being made is just that what we know is what we know and that's in (laughs) writing what we don't know is what we can leave and uh, speaking of what we don't know and what we do know um, this is a question regarding who killed uh, 
Belshazzar, uh, the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, was it co-conspirators from Persia within Babylon, or was he put to death by order of King Darius? Yeah, um, all we're told about Belshazzar's death was given to us in Daniel 5 and verse 30. Uh, the Babylonian Chronicle doesn't include any information, so we can't add to it. And the Persian annals don't include any more information that we would get from Daniel, that he was succeeded, he was the last one in line. Uh, if you want uh, archaeological evidence of Belshazzar, all that we're told about him was a prayer from his father, I believe Nabonidus is how you pronounce it, uh, where inscribed on a barrel he was praying to his gods to bless his son and his kingdom and reign which interestingly enough came to an end before his so that's why he didn't really accomplish much the point being made though is this what we're told in scripture that much we can be certain of because of the strike the strictures of its of what it's past forgive me i'm <laughs> dealing with some allergies here um, but at the same time uh, anything that we could test outside of the bible doesn't give us more information so i just stick to what we're told let us know if that helps you out nina wants to know who is judith uh, was she a judge, not mentioned in the book of Judges? Was she even a real person, or is this retelling of the woman who killed an evil judge? Uh, for those who don't know, the book of Judith is one of the books of the Apocrypha. The book of Judith itself was written around the beginning of the first century B.C., so around 100 years before Christ. And what's uh, interesting about it is it basically follows the same tone as the Song of Deborah, but in a bit more fleshed-out way. Uh, she basically is dealing with this corrupt leader in Israel. She beheads him, and she's blessed for it. Uh, spoiler alert. But if, on the other hand, uh, we're to ask, did that really happen? We have no reason to believe that it did. We have one reason to believe it was written. It was written. But anyone can write about a historical character or even a fictional character in a historical setting. What we can and can't test about it is tricky because when it comes to the Apocrypha, which means the veiling, it's this collection of books that were written literally just as Jewish historical fan fiction. We've got 1st through 5th Enoch. We've got the Wisdom of Solomon. We've got things like Tobit, which takes place during the time of the Assyrian exile, and uh, uh, plenty of others as well. But when we're talking about the issue of Judith and, well, was she even real? Well, it would be like me asking, is Peter Parker real? There's certainly a lot of writing about him and his adventures. His capabilities are certainly uh, mystical, but was there actually a real figure? Which is why, again, they put at the end of all of the films, any association with real <laughs> figures, fictitious otherwise, is entirely coincidental. Don't take that at face value. The Jews who authored Judith's story weren't talking about a real person. They were writing at the time of the Judges that would have been between 1400 B.C. and around 1100 B.C., so 300 years of history. Between that and the first century, where Judith was first written, no one <laughs> had any information, firsthand or otherwise, to get this information available, unless, of course, the Jews really dropped the ball and left a chapter out, which, of course, they didn't. If we're asking the question then, okay, well, is there some semblance to this being true? What we do know, as far as a woman uh, putting to death a evil judge, is in the book of Judges chapter 5, where Deborah singing, says in verse 24, Most blessed among women is Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Blessed is she among women in tents. That's intentional. Yeah. Uh, she asked for water. She gave milk. Or he asked for water. This is referring to the cruel king that she dealt with. She gave milk. She brought out cream in a lordly bowl. She stretched her hand to the tent peg, her right hand to the workman's hammer, 
She pounded Sisera and pierced his head. She split and struck through his temple. At her feet he sank. He fell. He lay still. At her feet he sank. He fell. Where he sank, there he fell dead. And then uh, notes the fallout of that encounter. So the real judge, Deborah, who was written by an individual who lived through the time of the judges and, of course, compiled by the prophet Samuel, who lived at least at the end of it, he would give us more reason to believe that Deborah and Sisera were real people as well as uh, J.L. as this uh, heroine that literally, uh, I guess, pitched her tent in this guy's head. But the point being made is that we know about her because it comes from a tested source. As far as uh, Judith's account, the events that it reports took place around a thousand years after they would have, give or take. Now, that doesn't dismiss it as history, but you do have to ask the question, where do the people writing it get the information? The Jews who knew their scriptures, who knew their history, held these books of the Apocrypha as nothing less than fictional. So we take their word for it. If they didn't think that Judith existed, I don't think we should either. But if, on the other hand, you'd say, well, the Roman Catholics put in their Bible, yeah, 1,500 years later, if you are making adjustments to the Bible in response to a political movement, then I'd say you have the problem. But if, on the other hand, you're going to go to the Bible the Jews themselves wrote and they didn't consider this a part of it, Great. If you say, well, this guy in early church history thought it was real. Great. These guys in early church history think it's fake. Take your pick. Well, he's older. Good for him. The point being made is that, though, what we do know about the book is that it wasn't written by the people who saw it, so it's not historical in that sense. Could it be? It could if the people who wrote it didn't clarify this is fictional at a time period where a lot of material was being produced that they clarified was fictional. Now, does it have any semblance on history? I think the inspiration largely came from this real woman, JL, but take that for what it's worth. Uh, if you say, well, you guys are just, uh, you know, male chauvinists and you can't give women any credit in the Bible, uh, what would be some other examples of noteworthy women in the Old Testament in particular? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think Deborah is like one of the best examples. You were just reading a little song from her. Yeah. So Deborah was raised up as a judge. And, and by the way, the, the term judge that's used there, it's not actually referencing someone who is in a courtroom. Uh, it's more like a, almost like a war chief, yeah, uh, like a leader. Yeah. Like a leader, like one a powerful power. leader that would act as almost like the de facto King of Israel and unite the people and militarily defend them. And Deborah was raised up in a very interesting point of Israel's history in which she was the judge, right? Barack was there, but he was kind of like, I'll go if you go. You know, he wasn't Can really... you hold my hand? Yeah, <laughs> not exactly the alpha male that you would want in that kind of situation. So Deborah really was the one leading the charge. And as Deborah mentions, it was Jael who actually ended up giving the killing blows <laughs> to this guy. Who was and, oppressing Israel at this time that Deborah was raised up to confront. He that's right. fled the battle and she... <clears throat> JL took care of the rest <laughs> in a very awesome way. So, yeah, you, you have that instance. You have Rahab, who was able to save the Israeli spies, and she was spared as a result. And adopted into the Messianic line. Yeah, adopted in the Messianic line. And basically, all the women I'm about to mention are in the Messianic line. <laughs> Pretty awesome, awesome women, for sure. So you have them. Then you have Ruth who was a Moabite, so already she has two things going against her. She's a woman and she's a Moabite, and yet her faithfulness to Naomi, her mother-in-law, and her just wisdom and her just general good-naturedness is praised by Boaz, and she's 
has an entire book of the Bible named after her, about her and her faithfulness, and as Sean said, is in the Messianic line. So she is one of the uh, maternal figures within the line of Christ, which is incredible. Then uh, my favorite is Esther, right? I mean, you read the book of Esther, and she is the heroine of that book, right? There's a reason why it's called Esther, and there's a reason why on Purim, the women dress up like Esther, right? You know, it's because Esther literally single-handedly saved the nation of Israel from genocide committed by a terribly wicked man named Haman. So you have incredible stories of faithfulness and heroism within females throughout the Old Testament. And uh, read Proverbs 31, the, uh, the faithful woman. I mean, you read Proverbs 31 and tell me if that sounds like some uh, you know, wisp of a woman staying at home and just uh, surrounding her life around her her man and has no personality of her own. Which, by the um, way, that section of Proverbs was written by a woman, right? And they allowed that. Uh, also, note we can talk about David's righteous wife Abigail. We can talk about uh, Miriam. Oh, she wasn't perfect. Noting her vital role in the preservation of Moses' life in his childhood, and the fact that in Exodus 15, we noted her as basically a co-ruler among Israel, where she was in leadership over the women. We can talk about the prophetess of um, uh, Anna, I believe it was, during the baptism of Jesus going into the New Testament. We can talk about the daughters of Philip who were identified as prophetesses. We can talk about was it uh, Priscilla was the dude? Aquila was the wife? Uh, I, I can't tell. <laughs> it's so confusing, but yeah. A husband yeah. and wife both honored as heads of the household that was hosting a church. We can talk about plenty. We can talk about the first eyewitness of the resurrection, speaking of Easter, was a woman. Right. <laughs> and we can go on. But let's just emphasize the point. Um, no, I don't think Judith is... Uh, historical or belongs in our Bibles, but it's not because there aren't heroic women in the Bible or that's not allowed. There are plenty, and I think that we know where they got that from, which again, Judges chapter 5, the Song of Deborah. Make that comparison. If you want to read it, great, but remember the comparison to Spider-Man wasn't disrespectful. It was apt because that's how the Jews who wrote it treated it. Um, let us go to a question from Yari, who wants to know, why doesn't every ministry that is false get shut down? And then he gives examples, but uh, noting like Herod, Ananias, Sapphira, etc. And why does God allow them to continue to exist and even grow? And why do some that teach the truth get shut down? So the why of persecution and the why of the prosperity of false teachers. Uh, obviously, the Bible includes a lot of warnings on how to avoid false teachers, not a promise to shut them down, but that's more building a point on a negative. Why the positive for negatives? Yeah, so I think Paul gives us an interesting it, it is kind of an interesting reason in Second Timothy chapter 4 and verse 3, for the time will come when they will not, not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So in other words, God, if God's intent was simply to have his word be the only available word, he could do that, right? It would be very simple and easy for God to do that. What God, his intent has always been is to preserve the liberality and the free will of mankind to be able to choose something other than him. And no matter how close to the truth these these teachers are going to be, it doesn't really matter. If they miss the mark of the resurrection, they miss the mark, right? You, you, there's no like 
almost made it to heaven category. You know, like, well, you're 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 a Mormon, you're slightly better than an atheist, so you're going to make it into this middle category. No, no, no. It's, it's not you getting what you deserve. It's do you want fellowship with God forever or do you not? That's and right. if you've settled for a false god, then God's not going to force you to conform to the real one. He'll exactly. let you have your false god, which is you. Exactly. So notice what he says. He's, he doesn't say that these false teachers are coercing people to follow him. He's saying the people are heaping them up, right? They're, they're actually promoting these people to be in the position that they're in. So God will allow for these false teachers to gain attraction. Why? Because the people want it, right? They're, they're not being forced into it. They want to follow this type of false teaching. Now, there are different types of scenarios where you could talk about more like abusive people or corrupt people in that kind of way. I think that would be a more difficult question to answer. But uh, in essence, if we're just talking about ministries that go astray from the gospel and they gain a large following, that's why they gain such a large following. I remember uh, watching pretty recently a clip of a very famous prosperity teacher who was yelling at the camera, money cometh to me now. And I was kind of like laughing at it. And someone commented on it and it was very insightful. They said, what kind of a person would keep watching after that, thinking that they're receiving truth from this man? Apparently, and, because his church still exists enough. That's right. And the the answer is, right, this person's being a little sarcastic, but the answer is someone who wants money to come to them right now, right? A greedy person. So the reason why this guy is getting so much money and fame is because he is he's not coercing people. He is communicating with people who are very greedy, very selfish, and want what they want, and they want to turn God into a genie in the bottle. So as long as there are people that push people like this along, God will allow it to happen because he's not going to force anyone to believe the truth. He is going to allow people to believe the truth because it's the truth. So persecution or a lack of success is not a sign of a successful ministry or a truth teller. Uh, you have a guy like Jeremiah, faithful to the truth as a day is long, and he didn't really gain much of a following, right? But then you have guys, if you read the book of Jeremiah, there were people that had really successful ministries during the time of Jeremiah. Too bad they were saying nothing but lies, right? But they, they had really big followings, and Jeremiah had to contest with these people. So God will not uh, God will not force anyone to believe in him. So if, if someone's being persecuted or cast out, why is that happening? It's because people don't want the truth. That's what Jesus said. This is the condemnation that has come into the world, that light has come into the world, but men love the darkness more than the light. So sometimes you see the opposite. Sometimes you see the truth being persecuted and the lies being exalted, and that's because we live in a fallen world where some a lot of people will choose the lie over the truth. Yeah, and again, it's not fun. It's not easy. You look at people, and you, especially if you are one, who are trying to be faithful in a particular area of ministry, you see nothing for it, and you honestly have to ask yourself a question. Am I doing it for the results, or am I doing it for the reward? A reward happens at the end, not the middle, or the beginning for that matter. It's something that we have to wrestle with in our hearts every single day. Am I willing to be hated? if it means I'm faithful to what God has legitimately called me to do. If, on the other hand, I ask myself, has God indeed called this, called me to do this? What standard am I judging that by, his word or my personal feelings, my vendetta on a particular topic or my desire for attention and fame? If people are going to be deceived, 
make sure that you're not one of them. <laughs> if false ministries are going to exist, make sure that you're not leading them. <laughs> if you are seeing people being lied to, make sure that you aren't joining them. That's the only thing that we can control. God will allow the wheat and the tares to grow together, but then when the full fruit has grown, make sure that you're the one being weighed down by the fruit of what God's done as opposed to the people who are just weedy. So with that being said, Yari, thank you for the question. And understand, I understand the frustration, but make sure that we're not saying, why doesn't God just make life easy? Because it's not. Uh, another question from Craig who wants to know, um, regarding the objection, well, I need to believe in the validity of the Bible before I can believe what it says about the eyewitness reports. How do we combat this? Uh, we went into it briefly regarding the persecution of the disciples, but you can just say, oh, well, that's just what the Bible says. Anyone can made up that they were persecuted. Did they do that? And then secondly, what additional data would we have to trust the Bible? Yeah, so when historians go and they evaluate any book of antiquity, they have to evaluate the author. They have to evaluate what's being written. So again, the Bible is written by people who lived during the time. So that's not a reason to necessarily believe what they're writing, but it is a reason to at least consider it. It's a reason to look at it and say, what can we see from their writings that are validated and which can we see from the writings that aren't? One of the uh, one of the principles that are applied to texts like this is the principle of what they call embarrassment, meaning that if you are making something up, you're going to make something up that is going to convince more people. You're not going to include something in there that would drive people actively away from your religion as well as make you look like an idiot. Plus, with the account of hostile witnesses as well, if they made it up, they wouldn't admit to their lie. That's Otherwise, right. they'd be supporters. That's why these things double down. That's right. So when it comes to what we believe about, let's say, the persecution of the early saints, number one, it is verified by extra-biblical sources. And by the way, these people are bragging about it, right? So when you read Suetonius or even the Jewish Talmud, these guys aren't saying like, oh, these poor Christians are being persecuted. They're like, yeah, you know, these guys are terrible, and this is proof that they're wrong is because the, the hammer of the gods is coming down on these people, and they're mocking the crucifixion of Jesus. They're mocking the crucifixion of the believers. All the while giving us more and more data to verify the resurrection. <laughs> That's right. So it, it's absolutely verified across the board. But even if you set all that aside, who would make that up? If I want to entice people to my religion, you know what I'm not going to do? Tell them like, hey, come to my religion where all the founders got horribly executed and mangled because you want to be a part of this, right? If you're going to make up a story about your founders, make up a story where they lived amazing lives all as a result of their faithfulness to God. So you would make up a, a story where the people came to knowledge of Jesus and then all their ills and ails went away and their life was just rainbows and sunshine until they passed on in peaceable old age. That's the kind of story you would make up in order to entice people to your religion. You certainly wouldn't make up a story of being persecuted and executed in horribly brutal ways. Uh, beyond that, it's not really in the Bible that we even get the majority of the martyr accounts. We have to actually go to extra-biblical sources from, yes, other church historians like Justin the Martyr as well as Eusebius. Yeah, the so. only martyr account we get in the Gospels or in the Bible as a whole, we have one that immediately was prior to it in Second Timothy that was before Paul was executed, but we don't have a report of Paul dying. Mm -hmm. The only apostle that we have the death of is James, right. and that's making an important point as well. If we have reports beyond 
historical doubt. And you can look at the uh, doctorate research of Sean McDowell on this uh, regarding the verifiable historical deaths of Peter, James, and Paul. That settles an issue for historians noting, did these things actually happen? Do the research, do the reading, but make sure that you're actually talking to someone who's objective because I share your frustration when someone, you pour your heart and soul and your brain matter for that instance into giving them every reason to believe these things, play by their rules, and then they change the goal or they move the goalpost, as they say, that's, of course, going to be frustrating, which is why you want to do the tests of sincerity first. And that's, of course, when we say, well, if I were to answer this to your satisfaction, would you believe that Jesus rose from the dead for you personally? And, of course, they can uh, give the snarky, well, of course I would, and you can maybe pull a few more <laughs> tests or read between the lines. But if, on the other hand, you know them, they're genuine, and you take the time to do it and you see the results, then that is something God will honor. And even maybe if it doesn't, understand you're talking out loud in public, others might be listening. Others might read that comment thread later. Don't think that it's all for naught, but also understand as well, we don't want to cast our pearls before swine, especially one so precious as this. Uh, finishing up, Yari wants to know uh, regarding the female disciples, what happened to Mary Magdalene, for instance, after Jesus, was she martyred as well? Thank you. Yeah, Yari, we don't know. Uh, as far as the accounts of the women, we do have the reports in the Gospels, which note in that culture was an account of embarrassment as well. Who believed in the resurrection first? The women. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what guy's going to admit that unless he had to? But the point being made is this. Uh, there aren't female apostles. Apostles is a very specific title and name. Uh, Mary Magdalene, among the others who were the first eyewitness of the resurrection, Salome, Johanna, and others, uh, they were disciples, they were followers, but they weren't sent out by Jesus. We have those guys named. The one who replaced Judas's role was um, Matthias, so note that point. But as far as Mary Magdalene's uh, ultimate account, she's definitely with the Lord now, whether it was through persecution or not, we won't say because he's got to know. But we do appreciate what you all have taken the time to listen to us to say. Uh, feel free to ask questions further about the issues we've discussed. We until then, if you guys have a good Friday, happy Easter, God bless you, and see you all again. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.